Hello and welcome to Shadow Talk, your weekly cybersecurity news and threat research podcast brought to you by the ReliQuest threat research team. My name is Chris and I'm your host and I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues from the Threat Hunt team. So first on the line we have Brian Kelly. How's things Brian? Welcome back. Thanks for having me Chris. Not too bad. Great week of hunting and uh, we're closing here strong so looking forward Fabulous. to the end. Fabulous. Good to hear. Good to hear. And we also have another new contributor on Shadow Talk, and that's James Shang. Uh, welcome aboard, James. You well? Why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you, Chris. Um, I'm uh, James Shang. I currently am on ReliQuest's threat hunting team, so I work with BK. Um, yeah, it's pretty early over here for us in Vegas, getting that daily dose of caffeine in. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, just to reiterate this for for listeners this is a podcast in which we have people from across the globe so it's always fun and games trying to get people in a reasonable time um we usually record this at 3 p.m uk uh, which is very convenient for me i might add I'm, I'm, i don't pick these times <laughs> just want to point that one out um but it's very very early for james so thank you very much for joining uh from vegas james what, what we're talking seven o'clock in the morning or is it eight yet it's seven. Yeah, exactly. On point. Uh, oh, yeah. my goodness. Well, thank you very much. We uh, we all appreciate it. Um, great to have you on. So we'll start by discussing a recent piece of research that was released last week, uh, both to ReliQuest customers and also externally via a blog uh, that detailed common attacker techniques uh, that we've observed through true positive incidents affecting customers. So I think it's just a, a really important thing to note that this was, you know, true positives. Just emphasize these were all confirmed, you know, no, no false positives at all. Um, so really, really good data. Um, we identified that of all the techniques that, that we observed here at LiveQuest, the top three were, I guess, unsurprisingly, all related to phishing. So specifically uh, phishing, phishing for information, spear phishing. Uh, this was also replicated in the sub techniques uh, well, we also saw, you know, huge amounts of um, uh, exploitations of uh, public facing vulnerabilities, targeting remote services uh, and also password spraying, you know, which is an interesting one, was quite highly represented. Um, so really interesting kind of you know, piece of research is looking at attacker techniques. I think when I kind of uh, initially glanced at this, I thought, OK, a lot of this is quite obvious, uh, but, you know, good to go back and, and kind of reiterate, you know, these are the common ways in which attackers are targeting uh, organizations across the globe. Um, so I'll start with you, Brian. You know, what was your initial reactions when when reading this report? Yeah, so like you said, Chris, like it's definitely not surprising, you know, given how I suppose threat actors or adversaries typically gain access to organizations. And um, I suppose what really kind of stuck out to me, like looking back, was the I suppose changes in I suppose delivery methods, like not so much the techniques, well, if you look at Cuba, for example, how that adapted to the change of Microsoft implementing the blocks on the Office uh, macros, you know, like how quick they were to kind of change things up, operationalize things and kind of move on from there to kind of keep the, the loader alive, you could say. And um, I suppose it's it's good to look back on these things to see, you know, where we've come to highlight the changes that we've observed over time and, you know, the importance of staying up to date with these things and knowing your attack surface because if you're not keeping up today you could be another statistics on you know one of these forms where you've been hit as well so good stuff 
Yeah, I think that was uh, the thing that I took away as well, is that these these actors, even though there's a, these are kind of commonly known techniques, there are little subtle nuances that have been, you know, changing all the time. So you obviously mentioned, you know, your, your Quackbot example there, uh, HTML smuggling, obviously that was used by a lot of these Quackbot uh, affiliated uh, threat actors as well. Name that on the actual report. Um, and and that's that's what cyber threat, threat intelligence is is all about, isn't it? It's trying to be proactive. I think the example I gave on the blog uh, was a really good uh, phrase that uh, one of um, one of our old colleagues, uh, James Chappell, used to use all the time, and that's staying left of boom. Uh, it's a really kind of military phrase. I'd not actually heard it, funny enough, before I entered this kind of um, sector. Um, but yeah, just trying to stay ahead of that malicious activity by looking at what has already happened, um, I think is a really, really um, useful kind of point there. Um, James, was there anything that took you by surprise or kind of pretty standard when looking at the report? Yeah, um, one of the things that was a little bit surprising is sort of um, the prevalence for phishing for information and spear phishing um, on that list. I think um, we've seen from the hunting side and the intrusion response side, we've seen this more associated with um, things such as like business email compromise, where we've had like quite a few intrusions where the threat actor will, you know, target key individuals within that organization, um, whether it be like directors of finance, accounts receivable managers, and, you know, users that deal with invoices and such finances, um, really that spear phishing aspect. And they'll sort of lie in wait and sort of collect information, whether that be from like an inbox rule or of the sort. Um, and yeah, uh, and, and customers will oftentimes be surprised by that. They'll be like, oh, you know, how did this happen? Um, and a lot of the times they'll be like, yeah, this is legit like public information. You know, it takes maybe 30 seconds to go to company X and look at their C-suite structure. And then, um, you know, emails a lot of days are now for companies, their first name, last name. So you just, Google it, it takes five seconds to look up person X and then pull up their LinkedIn. It says, you know, director of finance for 20 years. So, um, you know, it, it, it is a little bit surprising, I think, for customers um, when we're dealing with those sort of intrusions. Um, and in, I think it's a trend that's sort of going to continue. Um, so it's important to understand the risks and deploy the proper mitigations associated with that. Uh, absolutely. And you very, very... Uh, keenly brought me on to my next question, of course. So obviously these these techniques, have you, as you just mentioned, are pretty heavy on the sides of like facilitating initial access. Um, so obviously we've, we've talked about phishing, remote services, password spraying, uh, vulnerability exploitation. You know, that would be the first four, like straight off the top of my head, that I would name as the, the four most common ways of getting onto your network. What What's the key takeaway from this, James? Should, what should listeners do? You know, if you can get these issues right, I would imagine that would make a real enormous impact on your sort of general cyber resilience to a real wide variety of threats. So what should listeners really be doing? Just statistically speaking, um, we're definitely just going to see more of that in initial access because it is that first part of the kill chain. Um, but we can sort of use this to our advantage, right? So, for example, um, from what we do a lot um, when we're developing new threat hunt ideas and researching what to hunt on, one of the sort of guidelines we have, like you mentioned earlier, is um, uh, hunt left. We want to sort of be proactive about detecting things earlier on in the kill chain. Um, and, you know, that goes hand in hand from a detection standpoint, um, detecting these sort of 
initial access attempts should be up there in terms of importance and it should represent you know uh, a significant part of your detections that you have deployed in your environment and it's not not to say necessarily that detecting in this area is an easy feat um, typically with these detections around initial access you know you're phishing you're uh, password guessing, um, it could be pretty noisy and sometimes it could be pretty analysis heavy. Um, but if you're able to filter through that noise, you got yourself a pretty good shot at um, avoiding incidents before they even happen. I like it. I like it. Filter the noise. Very, very good kind of uh, common sentiment to, to bring out of that, really. You know, that's what we're all about here at LiQuest is filtering through the noise, you know, reducing that complexity and, and making sure we've got the best visibility of these threats. So, yeah, really, really good point to make there. Um, we'll move on to um, a topic that we've covered quite a bit in the last few months, say the last few months, uh, last, last five weeks, I suppose, because it's been about five weeks since the initial tranche of impacted companies were released by the CLOP ransomware group. Uh, of course, you'll likely remember this came after CLOP exploited a critical zero-day vulnerability affecting file transfer provider MoveIt, which was subsequently used to steal you know, huge amounts of data from, from hundreds of companies. Uh, so this is something that the CLOP has done quite a bit in the past. You might remember, I think it was a couple of years ago, they targeted uh, Excelion FCA, which is a kind of legacy product, uh, and also the more recently the Go Anywhere uh, file transfer services for the same reason. They're trying to steal data and use that as a, a conduit to extort companies. Um, so, Brian, briefly touch upon CLOP, you know, given it's it's been a month since they, they started leaking victims uh, as part of this exploitation of this particular vulnerability. You know, what's the latest? Yeah, sure. So the latest, I've actually only came up to this, uh, this I suppose, intelligence yesterday or kind of reports yesterday was that uh, Klopp stood up a site that holds PwC client data. And judging by the cert as well associated with it, it looks like it's going to be up for three months. So like it, it actually holds quite a lot of information and um, a serious amount of information. And um, so like, I, I suppose it begs the question of how did it get to this point? Um, where the denies on the site that it is actually pertinent data to PwC, um, and like you know where they're going from here. Uh, I suppose there's a lot of untrust there, and I've seen. I suppose we've seen it across some organisations that have been named. They don't believe that Klopp have gotten their data, but you know it's all I say. But you kind of have to fine tune things out. So, but that's uh, the latest I've seen so far. I suppose with more kind of names. I suppose we've seen some. Uh, Irish related government bodies actually being announced, which is actually quite interesting because CLOP, I suppose, have put themselves in certain positions where they don't want to be affiliated to the Russian government. You know, they've specifically said they won't release data associated with US government agencies or any law enforcement. And if they do come across it, they delete it straight away. And so it's kind of it's strange to see that they've targeted government bodies um, in Ireland as well and have threatened to release that data. So I'm pretty sure it was 134 gigabytes of data that they were trying to release. So mm. it's it's interesting to see where they're going with this. Mm. What, why wouldn't they disclose government organization? Is it that fear of repercussion? Like they just want to kind of uh, not stick their head above the parapet. They're just trying to kind of lay low while obviously doing something very loud and brash. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, trying not to make themselves an unnecessary target of kind of law enforcement. Is is that the right angle? 
Yeah, I, I believe. Yeah, I believe so, Chris. Um, it's it's strange for making so much noise though, um, and then kind of hanging back a bit because they don't want to, you know, be receptive of the consequences as well. Like I suppose what we've kind of seen with with Conti back in the day, where they they were targeting a lot of, like US agencies and taking actions and stuff like that. And then I suppose around the kind of with the war in Ukraine and Russia, there was a lot of fear from these groups as well whether to do anything because if they were caught, you know, they'd be likely sent to the front lines. So it's it's very hard to say. Yeah, I would uh, absolutely not want to be arrested and then uh, conscripted into the Wagner Group and sent to uh, to Ukraine. That's uh, that's probably a good motivation for them not to uh, to disclose that government or uh, information. Um, what what do you think comes next as part of this this overall incident? Obviously, this has been going on for five weeks now. Uh, and what should listeners be doing? Yeah, so I suppose there has been patches deployed. We did see quite a few vulnerabilities come out associated with Movit itself. Um, I suppose work with, your, with Movit with the vendors as well to get things patched, but also to ensure that you have applicable login there to kind of determine any potential impact and then obviously remediate from there. Um, so that would be the best thing to go to do going forward at the moment. Good stuff. I think one of the recommendations we made uh, as well on previous podcasts talking about Clop is, you know, even though this is affecting Movit, you know, I think just take a look at the the other file transfer software that you may be using, even if you're not using Moveit, because this is the kind of thing that they're going after. You know, making sure that they're updated and that you're you're happy with the um, the risk associated with that particular type of software, because you know this is the third time that Clop has done this, and like we we've said before on these ransomware groups, they are they are quite you know monkey sees monkey does. It wouldn't surprise me if another you know group of this nature started to copy them um you know single i guess we should call it single extortion now they're not even ransomware in a way it's just data extortion isn't it so yeah just i think just be aware of uh, the fact that this is something that's that's becoming uh, an emerging risk and and just uh, act appropriately i guess um let's move on to the last topic of the day and this is something that we haven't touched upon so obviously we talked about clop a lot in the last few months um but we haven't touched upon uh AI or chat GPT uh, a great deal. I think I remember we we did have a, a special episode dedicated to this back in January uh, when chat GPT was becoming quite public. Uh, but essentially a, uh, a chat GPT style AI tool uh, that apparently has no ethical boundaries or limitations uh, is offering threat actors a way to perform attacks uh, on a never before seen scale. Uh, that's according to researchers. Uh, there's been the observation of a generative artificial intelligence platform called Worm GPT uh, being marketed on cyber criminal forums, uh, which has been described as a sophisticated AI model capable of producing human-like text that can be used in hacking campaigns. Uh, and this tool reportedly presents itself as a black hat alternative to GPT models designed specifically for malicious activities. So, uh, really quite bad stuff, I guess. From my perspective, I, I think this is this is just it's only a matter of time, really, isn't it? Um, th- this was always going to come down the pipeline eventually. So, question to you both is, you know, ultimately, what's your take on this supposedly malicious AI model? Yeah, sure. So, I suppose, like you said, Chris, it was only a matter of time. Um, and I suppose with adversaries, they're always, you know, looking for new things to add to their arsenal. And this is just one of those great things that they can add to it. Um, I suppose it would definitely speed up, I suppose, developments into like submission strains of malware. Um, I suppose as well, in a sense, it's 
an easier market to get into for people that are less inclined in regards to offensive cybersecurity in that sense, because they have a tool available that they can learn and use to create uh, new strains of malware and new ways, I suppose, to exploit an environment. So it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting topic. Good stuff. Any thoughts, James? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's, yeah, as BK said, it's going to sort of allow actors that previously haven't been in that sort of area to sort of um, really get their hands on tools um, and maybe even specialize things to the environment that they're working in. Um, I think overall, it's going to have like its strengths and its limitations. Um, I think some of the strengths uh, that even from that article is being able to really contextualize things to be very specific um, and being able to really like, for example, if you wanted to write a phishing email targeting a specific role, uh, you could do that. It gives you the ability to do that. So I could definitely see like that that being there for uh, Worm GPT. Um, some limitations, though, uh, like uh, given the the fact that these AI learning models already use existing and past data to do things, um, things along the lines of like malware and um, certain ISCs and TTPs. Um, that we've seen shouldn't necessarily change because it's already sort of being based on um, learned data, past data. Um, and it should be on things that we're sort of detecting already. Um, but definitely going to be um, pretty unique to see uh, what it sort of generates. Sure. I think that's the the take we had on it before is that this wouldn't necessarily introduce new threats. It would just kind of fine tune existing problems that organizations are, are facing so the example you gave there is like a phishing email you know that's the most suitable for the the organization that that threat actor is targeting um which i guess is really significant because you know at the moment if your email controls fail then it's kind of down to the individual user in many ways to kind of spot those errors or those inconsistencies and this will make those errors much reduced much more reduced if you catch my drift um and malware creation as well that's going to significantly lower the barrier of entry i would imagine uh for developers you know trying to create malware and enter that space um i also kind of pondered whether ai could be used for like you know trying to identify where on a network like the, the crown jewels are going to be the most sensitive data that they want to exfiltrate by making an assessment based on like former intrusions that have, have taken place um, based on like similar network topologies or like similar sectors, similar countries of origin, things of that nature. Can that assist the threat actor in knowing where to go on the network, like to get to those crown jewels in the most quick time? That's kind of something I always thought as well. So I wonder whether it will make like lateral movement easier, things like that. Um, so yeah, what what do you both think? Um, how do you both think malicious AI models might be used in the future? You know. Um, what what's the, the the future look like for the for these kind of tools? Yeah, I, I think this is uh, extremely interesting to see where this will go. Um, it's hard to say where it will end up, but I am in agreement with like you know it's gonna I suppose fine tune uh, existing threats. This is something that actually one of one of the members on the team, Leo Dawson, me, myself and himself, were talking about this at quite some length uh, to say the least. And um, is uh, I suppose the open reliance and the growing reliance on these uh, AI modules. Like, for example, we've seen a company in Asia let go of all of their customer representatives and implemented a AI chatbot to deal with, like, you know, customer queries and stuff like that. So the, the question there is, um, I suppose, 
what if the AI module itself was corrupted in a sense? Like we are training these module, modules based on information that we have. If that's manipulated in some sort of way, you know, it could be, you know, forced to do something else. Like we could train it to look at, say, a picture of a cat and a dog and teach it how to differentiate between the two and eventually broaden it across the rest of animals and stuff like that. For To give you a simple analogy, I suppose, uh, what if that was corrupted? And it's when you see a cat, you see a dog. So the output here is, you know, in terms of a consumer reaching out to the, say, like, for example, the Asian company uh, looking for uh, support and the AI bot is corrupted, that could be leveraged in a supply chain attack. So what organizations use that chatbot, like are consulting with this chatbot that's actually been manipulated in, certain, in such a way that adversaries are leveraging it to, you know, I suppose, execute their end goal, which is like, say, gaining initial access to an environment, you know? So it's it's something that crosses my mind. And I think it's definitely something that's, you know, will we see in the future? I don't know, um, but it's, it's going to be interesting. Good stuff. Yeah, the possibilities are almost endless, aren't they? I guess, uh, without trying to be too speculative and like, oh my God, AI is going to take <laughs> over the world. But um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of poss- possibilities from both, you know, a negative, but also a, a really positive sense. You know, I'm I'm starting to look at AI and how it can, you know, assist our sort of line of work as well. So there are a lot of extreme positives with this technology as well. It's not all bad news. Um, so I guess we can end on that note. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> good stuff. Um, thank you both for your contributions today. Really interesting discussion. Um, I'll just finish by uh, stating if you do like the podcast, give us a like or a review on your respective podcasting platform. Uh, consider subscribing to it as well. It really helps with our reach and, and definitely bringing the podcast to other listeners as well. Um, but other than that, thank you very much for listening. Uh, Stay safe and we'll see you next week. Bye.